you want to keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 15. And the outline in the bulletin might prove helpful for you. Uh, my name is Y. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at BDPC. And uh, I have three kids. And uh, the oldest, who shall remain nameless, has a peculiar way of eating his food. Now, the typical meal that my wife serves up would consist of veggies, meat, rice, and of course, fruit. Now, what he will do is that he will finish the fruit and the vegetables first before, you know, get those things out of the way and save the meat and the rice for last. Now, how many of you do that? Anyone? Okay, well, that's what we'll be doing today. Okay, we're going to look at points uh, one and three in the bulletin first. Get those, in a sense, out of the way before we concentrate on the, the bulk of the section uh, in point two. So please uh, pray with me as we look at God's Word. Father, we need your help. Every time we come to your Word, unless you speak to us by your Spirit, uh, it would just be uh, words on a page to us. So, Father, please have mercy on each one of us. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our eyes to your truth and help us see. Help us be challenged as well as comforted by the truth you bring us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first point you have in your outline there is the justice of judgment. The justice of judgment, verses 1 to 9. You remember the, the chapter opens with God speaking to King Saul uh, through his prophet Samuel. And God gave Saul very clear instruction. And it was to completely destroy the Amalekites. Right? Every single one. All the men, all the women, even children, even infants, all the animals as well, were to be completely destroyed. Now people, as they hear this, as they read this, some of us might think, I mean, isn't that genocide? Isn't that ethnic cleansing? Now, if we were to simply think that way, then we would be importing our you know, 21st century moral categories into the Bible. And as well, we would be missing what the Bible is trying to teach us here. And that is, first and foremost, God is executing righteous and just judgment on the Malachites. God is the judge of all the earth and in all his doing, there is no miscarriage of justice. Now we see in verse 2 that God says his judgment on the Amalekites is because of how they attacked Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And, and the picture that uh, the Bible gives us there is the Amalekites attacked the, the rear end, which would be the, the elderly and the children and the women. But you see, any one of us with basic uh, Bible history will realize that's three, four hundred years ago. I mean, so is God punishing them now for what their ancestors did three, four hundred years ago? And the answer is, well, look at verse 18. In verse 18, uh, the Amalekites are identified as wicked people. So, three, four hundred years ago, they were wicked. And today, they are still wicked. 
And in verse 33, when Agag the king, when he is hacked to death by Samuel, he is explicitly condemned for his crimes, for his war crimes, for the lives that he has taken. So what this shows us is that God gave them, in a sense, three, four hundred years, but they still have not repented. As a culture, as a nation, they are still uh, unchanged and have set themselves against God. But people may still ask, what's the reason then for even children and infants to be destroyed? So I think one of the answers is that God must have judged this culture, this nation as so wicked, so terrible that it needs to be completely destroyed and not allowed to continue. Now, there are lots more that could be said on this subject, but I want to urge us to to stop thinking about the poor Amalekites and to start thinking about what this means for us individually. Because as John Woodhouse has observed, and I quote, Saul's mission to judge the Amalekites was a local, small-scale anticipation of the judgment that will finally come on the whole world at the hands of God's appointed king. End quote. See, God is holy and righteous. He has made us and we are accountable to Him. And so, far more pressing for us. It's not just, I the justice about what God should have done, should not have done with the Amalekites, but, but how ready are you? How ready am I to face the God of all the earth, the judge of the universe, on that great day when He calls us to account for all that we've done? How ready are you and I to face the ine- inevitable day of judgment? Now, the rest of this section tells us that Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. He kept King Agag alive. He spared the, the best of the animals. And Samuel will confront Saul on this. But let's look at the last section. The issue of repentance. Uh, the issue of repentance. So let's, we've had our veggies, now let's have our fruit. Verse 24 to 35. Now here we want to look first at Saul's repentance, or rather, the lack of it. You see, after Samuel's repeated confrontation, Saul finally, like finally he admits his sin in verse 24. Okay, look with me to verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. You are right, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. You see, he admits his sin, but notice what he immediately does. Offers the excuse. I was afraid, and so I gave in. Now, not only that, but after Samuel, again, repeats God's judgment on Saul, that he is rejected as king, Saul pleads again in verse 30. Look with me to verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned. I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Now you see, again what he says here is that he admits his sin. But what he does is immediately he goes and says, Come back with me so that I won't look bad. 
before the people. I mean, if you, if you distance yourself from me, how is it going to look on me? The prophet distancing himself from the king. So please, come back with me. You know, yes, you know, I've sinned, I'm sorry, but please, let's, let's have things go back to normal. And so often we are like that, aren't we? What hits us more is not the seriousness of our sin before God. But oh, there's this consequence. Oh God, I'm sorry, please take this consequence away. You see, what Saul cared about was not what God has said, but what the people will say. What Saul cares more about is not what God thinks, but what the people think. See, how much Saul reminds us of ourselves. May Saul's example help us to not merely have a superficial repentance before the Lord, but truly see how much we have sinned against Him to see the seriousness of our sin and truly repent before God. So that's Saul's repentance in this uh, last section. But in this section as well, we are told of God's repentance. God's repentance. Now, the word repentance is, uh, of course, not used in this version. But in other versions, like uh, the RSV, for example, uh, the word repentance is used of God. You see, because the word there that is used in verse 11, 29 and 35, you know, where in our version it says God regrets. Uh, can also be translated, God uh, repents or God is grieved. So, in verse 11 and 35, we see God regrets that he had made Saul king. But in verse 29, Samuel says, oh, This God, God is the glory of Israel and he does not lie and he does not, now in the NIV says does not change his mind, but it's the same word that God does not lie and does not regret. So, so which is it? Does God regret or does he not regret? Now, in verse 11 and 35, where God says he regrets making Saul king, the idea there is God grieving. Because the very first time the word regret is used of God is uh, in Genesis 6, 6, where, you know, because of the wickedness of the people and then God has to send the flood, it says of, it says of God, God regrets that he has made people and his heart was filled with pain. So the, the idea behind that word uh, is used to describe the pain or the grief that God has over our sin. But when it's used in verse 29, where God says, where Samuel says of God, he has rejected Saul as king. And he will not lie, he will not repent, he will not regret. There, the meaning is, God has determined this verdict. God has executed, he's, he's given this judgment and he will not repent from it. He will not move from it. This is not just some, you know, um, mother who is very angry at the son and, you know, just throws out an empty threat. No, no, this is God who has considered the just judgment that must be leveled on Saul and he's given this. He, you will no longer be king. And from this judgment, God will not relent, he will not repent, he will not regret. God will not change his mind. And so you see, friends, there is really no contradiction. And Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary has made the insightful comment. 
that only, only a God who both regrets and does not regret is a God who is worthy of our praise. Let me quote him in his own words. He says, Here is a God. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his response. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. See, one of the books I'm reading now is uh, about North Korea. And I don't know how much you know about North Korea, but as you, as you read about Kim Il-sung and his son, Kim Jong-il, how, how they have persecuted and, and tortured the people of North Korea, the, you know, choosing to enhance the, the nuclear program, and then millions go hungry. How people are sent to labor camps just because they, they, they complain about the regime. All these atrocities that I, I, I'm reading about North Korea, and you know, in this life, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, they will escape punishment. But because the God that we worship, the God that is there, is a God with feeling. He is a God who grieves over sin. And because He is a God with firmness, He will punish. He will execute judgment. There, there, is, there is consolation. There is hope that even though in this life, People, dictators, rapists, murderers, all these people may get away with their atrocities, but God, the God who both regrets and does not regret, He will not let them get away. There will be that day of judgment when He will call everyone to account. But of course, it is not just the atrocities by Kim Jong-il. It is also our atrocities. Have you reckoned with the reality that your sin and my sin, your greed, my greed, your lust, my lust, it grieves God. This is not just, you know, the, the human writer attribu- attributing to God some human characteristics so that we can understand, ah, oh, okay, yes, you know, God is infinite. Who can describe Him? And so we, we use a human characteristic to describe Him. Yes, that's what's happening. God is being described by a human characteristic. I mean, God feels pain in His heart. Does God really have a heart? I mean, not, not in a physical sense. But, but what is used, what a human characteristic that is being used to ascribe to God, yes, that's true. But the truth that's being conveyed is true. Did you see? It is true that He grieves. It is true that he feels pain in his heart because of our sin. This is a God who is worthy of our worship and our praise. So friends, that's the vegetables and that's the fruit. So let's now come to the meat and rice of the passage. Point two, the preference for obedience. The preference for obedience, verses 10 to 23. Right, God gave a clear command, completely destroy. But Saul spared the king, spared the best of the animals. And so Samuel is sent to confront Saul. 
And so Samuel goes. But before Samuel can confront Saul, he has to find him. And so Samuel is told, Oh, Saul has gone to Carmel. Oh, what's he doing there? Well, since he has successfully defeated the Amalekites, he has gone and built a monument to himself. And so from there, he's gone off to Gilgal as well. And so Samuel finally finds Saul. And I can just imagine Saul Saul seeing, hey, isn't that Samuel coming down the hill? And Saul is excited because he's delighted to see Samuel. Hey, this is the guy who anointed me. This is the guy who, who, who's my prophet, man. This, this is my, my buddy. And so he goes off and greets Samuel. And he says to Samuel in verse 13, The Lord bless you. The Lord bless you. And, and in case you're wondering, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. What's happening here? It, I mean, Saul says, I have carried out the Lord's instruction. What's happening here? Okay, is Saul like the teenager okay, who has come home from school and then, eh, there's nobody at home. And so he spends the whole afternoon playing computer games. Then, when the mother comes home, he quickly turns on the monitor, pulls the textbook in front of him, and then when the mom, hi mom, I'm doing my homework. Is that what's happening? Well, it's possible, it's possible, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Because even after repeated confrontation by Samuel, in verse 20, Saul still insists. I mean, confronted, confronted, confronted by the prophet, and then Saul still insists, but I did! But I did obey the Lord! I did! So, it means that Saul genuinely thought. He genuinely thought that he had obeyed the Lord. But how? How could he have genuinely thought so? I mean, it's obvious to you, it's obvious to I, it's obvious to Samuel, and I assure you, it is obvious to God. So how could Saul genuinely think that he had obeyed. And the answer is, the answer is, wait, I can't see my handwriting. Uh, hang on. Well, the words are becoming very blurred. Uh, I really can't see. Um, George, maybe you just come and read the rest. No, of course not. See, if, if, if I was truly going blind, that would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if, 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 if there was blindness setting in, would not that be a terrible thing? But friends, even more serious, even more life-threatening than physical blindness is that of spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. That's why Saul genuinely thought he had obeyed the Lord. And spiritual blindness is being blind to the reality of our sinfulness. Being blind to the depth, the, the, the true nature of our sin, the pervasiveness of our sin. That is what Saul 
suffered from. And in case it is not clear, Saul here is an example of what every one of us is like. What Saul suffers from is what you and I suffer from. Spiritual blindness. See, the the passage that's exposing Saul here is exposing us as well. When we look at this passage, we are meant to see a mirror. Saul's example here, yes, he's the king of Israel. Yes, he was unique in his own way. But, but Saul's life and example here, the exposure of his spiritual blindness here, is meant to serve as a mirror for you and I. So that when we look at this, when we look at this part of God's word, we can see we are like that. We are no different from Saul. But I know, because I'm realistic, right? I'm not naive. I know even as I say that, there are some of you sitting there in your comfortable seats, as Josh has said, who are thinking in your heads, no, I'm not. He's talking about the person next to me, the person in front of me, but I'm not like that. But don't you get it? The moment you insist that you are not blind, you instantly prove that you are. Because one of the key characteristics of spiritual blindness is that you are blind to your own blindness. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's why we are given this extended account of Saul's spiritual blindness here in this passage so that that the Word of God can serve as a mirror. No! You can say what you like. You can do what you like. You can insist all you like. But the Word of God is confronting us here. Look in the mirror and see. We are all like Saul. So can I urge all of us here, don't spend another second thinking. Not another second thinking how this applies to someone else. Don't even spend another second thinking how this applies to me. Pastor, you are like that. I know. What do you think was so difficult working through this passage? I know. I spent more time on this. I know. I know. I am spiritually blind. But do you know? Do you reckon with what the Word of God is telling and confronting you with now? He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. Don't spend another second thinking about someone else. Now, what are some of the characteristics, the the symptoms of this spiritual blindness? Well, Saul gives us two examples. And the first is shifting the blame. Shifting the blame. In verse 14, after uh, Saul says, I have obeyed. And then Samuel goes, Then what's this sound of sheep and cattle that I hear? And then verse 15, look at verse 15 with me. Saul says, The soldiers brought them from the Malachites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle. You see, Saul shifts the blame to today. Now in the original Hebrew, the word the soldiers is not even there. 
Right? All Saul says is they. They did it. They are the ones who took it. You know, some, who's the they? Not me. They. They did it. And there are, you know, two main ways that we shift the blame. Uh, the first is, you know, like Saul, we, we shift the blame to the other person. And then, you know, we can think, oh, oh no, no, no. I'm not really an angry person. I'm, I, I don't have an anger issue. But it's just that, it's just that guy. He was so irritating. He purposely tried and get on my nerves. It's not me. I, I'm not an angry person. It was him. Okay, so, I mean, we're familiar with that. But the other, the other way that this can happen is that we, we shift the blame to the messenger itself. So, you know, a uh, loving brother or sister or the pastor comes and, and, you know, points out some character flaw, you know, gives some feedback. You know, why, why did you act this way? Why was your response like that? And then we shift the blame to the person that's bringing us the message. We, we shift the blame to the, to the messenger. I, it's because he's jealous of my success. That's why he's saying that about me. Oh, no, no. This, you know, he's trying to make himself look good. That's why he said that about me. Now, the thing to recognize is this, right? Okay? Yeah? Think with me, yeah? Even if it's true. Okay? Even if it's true. Okay? Granted, it is 100% true that the person uh, who is jealous of your success. Even if it's 100% true that the person is trying to make himself look good. Even if that's true, it does not mean what he says about you is not. It does not mean that what he says about you does not carry a grain of truth. And so, remember, as I stand here telling you this, I am just a messenger. You know, don't, don't, don't hate me for pointing out our spiritual blindness. But don't because you don't like me. Don't because you, you, you know or you see some character flaw in me. That that's an excuse to not be confronted with what the Word of God is saying to you today. If you do, and some of you are doing that. That again proves the reality of our spiritual blindness, does it not? The second example of, uh, that Saul gives us of uh, the symptom or the characteristic of spiritual blindness is when Samuel continues to confront him about his sin, Saul, in verse 20, con- continues to insist that he did obey. I did obey. I did obey. And in verse 21, look at what he says. Verse 21. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. See? See, they took the best. You know, it was, this, was, this was devoted to God. And we took this so that it can, it can be sacrificed to your God. See, what's this? What's this? This, this is using religion as the excuse. This is, this is hiding behind good deeds. This is the symptom of spiritual blindness. This is the person thinking, how can you say this about me? 
I mean, look at all the good things I've done. Oh, this is the person thinking, how dare you accuse me of neglecting my family? I am serving the church. Or the person saying, what you guys are saying about me is not true. It cannot be true. How can it be true? Look at how, how my Bible study group is growing. Look at how the members are maturing. Now, incidentally, even if it's true that the Bible study group is growing, you know, and you are the you know, Bible study leader, even if it's true that the members are growing, making real strides forward in Christian maturity, even if that's true, what that means is they have confronted their spiritual blindness. They are doing something about it. Doesn't mean that you are free from spiritual blindness. Doesn't mean that you have no faults. Right? Other examples, you know. Who says I was gossiping? I do not gossip. I was just sharing a prayer request about this person. Very extended, detailed prayer request. But it was prayer requests. Who says I struggle with being generous with my money? I just want to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to me. Who says I'm racist? Don't I pray for the, for the nations in missions, prayer in my church? See, hiding behind religious duty and conformity to some man-made standard will not work with God. Because He's told us plainly what He wants. He's told us plainly what is it that He wants. And, and it's uh, what Samuel says in verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than a fat of rams. What God wants is obedience, not just burnt offerings. You know what's the difference between the two? With burnt offerings, you're offering an animal, the flesh of an animal to God. With obedience, we are offering our very selves, our very will, to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. Not, not the external flesh of an animal, but me, my will, my own will, to say to God, not my will, but yours be done. God wants our heart. He wants our devotion. He wants us to love Him with our heart, soul, mind and strength. That's what God wants. So there is no, no chance at all, no chance at all buying God off with our religious exercises. He cannot be bought off. He cannot be domesticated. And friends, because of our spiritual blindness, we don't even know how far we've fallen short. And unless you are the most extremely spiritually blind person out there, we can all appreciate the fact, can't we? That when it comes to the obedience, the, the, the perfect obedience that God requires, even we know, unless you're the most spiritually blind, okay? And there have been such people in history, I am perfect. They have said, I am perfect. Right, that, that's an example of being the most extremely spiritually blind. But I, 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 I pray to God and I trust that none of us are like that. And so we know that we do fall short. That if, if what God requires is perfect obedience, we fall short. Then we are in trouble. If that's 
what God requires? Because none of us, none of us at all the time in every situation will say to God, not my will but yours and do it. None of us is capable. None of us do that. And so the good news of Christianity is that God has sent His Son. And this Son has always given perfect obedience to the Father. That even in the Garden of Gethsemane, this Son said to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. And so what He offered to God was perfect obedience as well as the offering, not the flesh of some animal, but His own flesh. He offered both obedience and a sacrifice of Himself. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just before James. This has been, I'm sure, a more difficult sermon to listen to uh, than it is for me to say. But hear the good news. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. This is Jesus speaking. First he said, <clears throat> and Jesus says, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy to the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, do you, you, you hear the, the, the similar words being used here? And you see, how have we been made holy? We've been made holy by the perfect obedience of the Son in saying yes to the Father to offer His body, His own body as a sacrifice. And, and because of that, because of His obedience, uh, because of his sacrifice, we have been made holy. Jesus' perfect obedience has made us holy. And in the book of Hebrews, uh, being made holy has the idea of being forgiven of our sins. Having, having access to God now. Having an eternal salvation. That's what being made holy is. And so, how, how does this help us with our spiritual blindness? Because if this is true, and, and as each day we meditate on this reality, it is, it is the offering of the Lord Jesus, His body, which has made me holy. And if God's help, I meditate on the cross, what do I see? I see it took nothing less than that to save me. If it took that to save me, isn't that evidence and testimony in abundance of how truly sinful I am? And so there's no need to pretend. The cross is there, standing in history of the 
sinfulness of humanity. This is the depth of your sin. This is, this is the depth of your hopelessness that the Son of God had to come and sacrifice Himself. That was the only way we could be saved. And that stands as the testimony of our sinfulness. And so if we meditate on the cross, we will be led to less and less Try and hide and pretend, plaster over. Oh no, I'm not like that. Oh no, I'm no, no, no. There's no need to pretend. And also, if it is true that the cross of Christ, we are made holy by His offering. If it is true that the cross of Christ saves me from my sins, then, then it means, it means He saves me from all my sins, every single one. If I do indeed trust Him. And so with God's help, I can face up to the true nature and power and depth of my sin. And so if I do struggle with greed, anger, lust, uh, the lack of joy, I do not have to hide the reality of who I am. Because there is now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the last thing to think about, and we'll end with this, in terms of dealing with our spiritual blindness is, ask yourself, who's your Samuel? Do you have a Samuel in your life that in a sense you've given permission to, to come up to you and, you know, do this, hey, why are you like that? Why did you do that? Now if you, if you, if you haven't given someone permission, and, and, you, and you must you must realize, right, God has brought us into this community of believers, brothers and sisters. So that sometimes, uh, you know, whether you've given them permission to or not, you know, because of their love for you, they'll, they'll do that to you. Okay, and uh, you know, in a sense, that's uh, what Andrew and I, that's what you pay us for, right? To, to, to do that, right? And sometimes you don't like it, but that, that, that's what we're told to do, right? Rebuke, uh, speak the truth in love, that's what we have to do. But on your own, you can invite you can, you can, as you, as you meditate on the cross of Christ, the reality of your sinfulness, as you meditate on the cross of Christ, the fact that all your sins, all will be forgiven, there's no condemnation, then with that as the basis, you can go to someone and say, can you please tell me, you know, what's wrong with me? And then the person may say, oh, you got bad breath. And you might want to say, oh, no, no, I, I want you to go deeper than that. I mean, yes, you know, that information is helpful, but, you know, can you go deeper? Can you tell me in what ways I am not confirming, in what ways I, I lack the fruit of the Spirit? God has given us each other because if it's just me looking at myself, because of my inherent spiritual blindness, I will not see what needs to be changed. That's why God has given us each other to use His Word as the mirror. Shine light to reflect. And so may God help us to see ourselves as we are, but more importantly, to see the cross of Christ for what it has accomplished for us.